My name is Tim Sanders, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tavi Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Tim Sanders. Tim is a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and former Yahoo Chief Solutions Officer. Tim has been featured in Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and ABC News. His approach to leadership and business is simple. Share what you know and who you know to help others succeed, and do so with compassion towards others. Elements that serve as the basis of his New York Times bestselling book, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends, which is also the focus of our discussion today. So hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be with you, Tanvir. Now, Tim, before we dive into your book, I think there's something right from the start here that needs clarification, and that is the role love plays in how we lead and how we do business and how we connect with those around us. So to start things off, how do you view love in the context of business today or what you describe as biz love? So... To me, the professional form of love, I call it biz love, is when you have the desire, it's a feeling you have about other people, you have a desire that they succeed, and you express it by sharing with them your key values, I call them your intangibles, your knowledge, your network, and your compassion. And for everyone really trying to say, I, I've seen this in the business world, just think about the greatest mentor you've ever had and how much she or he cared about you, how invested they were in your success, and how they only wanted you to seize the opportunity and pay it forward. That's the kind of love that I evangelize, and I find it absolutely critical to any type of leadership effectiveness. You, you can't lead people that you do not love. There's two stumbling blocks we run into when we talk about love in the context of business and leadership. And the first is that I think we tend to think of love in terms of emotions, in terms of how we feel about others. But as you point out in your book, the idea here of love being this killer app, it's not about what we feel. Rather, it's about our actions. It's about our behaviors and what we share of ourselves with others, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, in, in my experience, it starts with, it starts with an observation, something that we admire, like, connect with, cheer for. And that observation leads to a feeling. And the feeling is an emotional effect, right? And the feeling leads to an internal sense of commitment. And that's the key. That's the personal victory, as Dr. Stephen Covey Sr. would call it, which leads then to actions and vulnerability for that matter. So that's to me that process of, you know, when you meet that person at work, when you fall for them in terms of wanting to promote their success and how it becomes part of your response system to them. And in some cases, Tanvir, it becomes a curriculum for you to develop that person. Again, getting back to that example I used earlier of the mentor in your life. Right. And it actually touches on the second stumbling block that I think we have when we talk about love having a role in how we lead and how we engage others. And that is because there is that notion of it being a weakness. Because when we express or demonstrate love, it is a form of vulnerability. But as you pointed out in your book, by making our expression of love be about helping others, above sharing our insights, our knowledge, our network, and as you point out, and I love our compassion, 
it actually becomes a source of strength, even though we are opening up ourselves in some capacity to others. That's right. So the, the beauty of sharing these three intangibles is that they're very digital economy centric. If you think about them, the more you share knowledge and intelligently with other people, the more knowledge you have. You don't lose knowledge. You never get dumber by helping other people get smarter. When you intelligently share your networks to produce outcomes for other people, you actually grow, not shrink your network. Most importantly, though, when you share your human compassion, your empathy, your connectedness with others, it actually develops you as a human being and impacts not just your business life, but your personal life and your social life as well. So all these things actually grow. So I've, I've kind of developed this new saying. I say I'm often provisioned but I'm never taken advantage of because, you know, I'm totally fine with being what I call a flash mentor and helping somebody that I hardly know solve a vexing problem with information I've taken the time to to learn. I don't care if they say thank you. I don't care if they ever give me credit for it in public. I don't care if they take it and compete with me for a consulting or training opportunity. What I care about is that I've made a difference in their life and that feedback makes me want to do it again. And the thing I've thought about the last few years is my biggest challenge, your biggest challenge, the biggest stumbling block to really practicing this biz love is what I call ego economics. So ego economics work like this. You help five people. One of the five comes back to you and says, man, you changed my life. Two of the five say thank you. I'm grateful. One of the five says nothing, and then the last of the five takes your gift and uses it somehow against you, either competitively or otherwise. Ego economics says, I have long forgotten about the one person I helped. I can't even remember that. That's not how ego economics works. It centers in on what we think of the rule of reciprocity. What about the one that didn't say thank you? And how about that one who took advantage of me? Ego economics turns those two into 99%. And that's why I hear people all the time saying, well, I'm never going to make connections for a person like that again without a contract. Look what she did to me. And I almost want to audit them on the spot. Like, like, tell me over the last five years, how many people have you made connections with? And sure as shooting, the ego economics always work out that they have long forgotten those people they've helped significantly or those who have properly thanked them because our ego tender says no one should ever be able to take advantage of us. And I believe you can have the win-win here if you say, I will always share the things that are invisible and I will share them intelligently with the right people at the right time for the right reason. It also shines a light on our intention, right? I mean, if we say the idea here is that we're just sharing knowledge, it's not it's not like a sieve in our tank and the more we open it up, the dumber we become. I find when I share insights with people, it actually builds on it because people will share something that they read and adds to that understanding that you can then impart to somebody else. But if we're always looking at it from that notion of scarcity, like okay, well Excuse what am I getting in return? then are we right. really doing it for the right intention where we're just trying to help others be better? We're really trying to find value in what we contribute, whether it's just sharing our insights or sharing what we know or sharing somebody we know who can benefit this other person. Or are we trying to say we're doing this for the best intentions, but realistically, we're kind of also having a little scorecard of saying, well, did they at least say thank you and so forth? And then really, yep. it is ego gratification or ego. I love that term, ego economics. 
Yeah, so here's way, and I, I love your point of view. I totally agree. I, I think that I, I think we have to make a decision in our mind that the intention determines the outcome of the gift. Right. So if anybody's ever helped you and you kind of know that they're going for the win win, it's not as much of a gift as it is an investment in you. And that's okay. But you can always feel kind of the guilt creeping in, you know, in the back of your mind. So psychologists would say that when we give without expectations, others receive more fully. And there's significantly, this is really important, there's significantly less anxiety in our relationship. This is something that Abraham Maslow wrote about in his books. I, I, I've been reading a, a couple of his recent works, and he loves to talk about this concept called be love. Mm. That stands for being, the word being love, versus D love, which is deficiency love, right? So, so for everybody, you know, that I'll give you the quick, you know, review here. You know, Maslow's body of work was about the hierarchy of human needs. And the idea is, is that our, 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 we've completely um, become who we can become when we hit the top of that pyramid and we actualize. But if there's an unmet need, we don't get to that pyramid, right? So he talked about the idea we got to have food, we got to have safety, we got to have love, we've got to have esteem and respect. And then when all of those go away, then we can self-actualize. Okay, so where his whole theory kind of works now is he says, then that means that we are primarily motivated by our deficiencies, the things we don't have. And that makes us rather primal. Where we become enlightened, and this is important for leadership development, is when we become detached from those needs. Now, let's transfer that to be love, D love. D love is when you help people because you want them to like you. That's weakness. D love is when you help people because you have a narcissistic need to have people love you. D-love is when you love people at work because you're so lonely in your personal life. You just need a friend. Do you kind of see how these are all like where you are actually using the other person by showing them love? That that really is the actions of D-love. And Maslow talked about it with his patients. There's a lot of anxiety and conflict in those relationships, and they don't last that long. Being love is different. Being love, you're completely detached from your personal outcome. You are laser-focused on their improvement, you actually hold them accountable. Being love is more like your grandmother than your college roommate. That's a great example. I've once been given by a psychologist, okay? So being love is the idea that I don't need you to do anything for me. I am so full of all the love I need from the outside world. I give to you and you may take without saying thank you or doing anything in return. And for me, as a person who thinks about leadership development, the pursuit of that being love is really the ability for a leader to scale and sustain throughout a long career. There's something, Tim, that I just keep coming back to in my mind. You said, and I think it's an incredibly important point. And you talk about how we give stuff. What's the intention, if done incorrectly, leads to anxiety in the relationships? And On both sides. On right. both sides, because... If I were to, for example, offer some insight to somebody in the hopes that, okay, this is going to help them with this project or so forth, and then I'm waiting for them to come back and say, oh my God, thank you, you rescued us out of that bind, but I don't get it. There's anxiety because I'm basically waiting for that person to come back to me. Now, if that's just for one person, that's fine, but imagine if I have to do this for every person I help. Imagine how much mental focus and cognitive capacity am I wasting 
thinking about, I have to check back in. Did this person right. come back to me with a thank you or do they tell me how much they appreciate it? I got this mental spreadsheet now happening in my head where I'm tracking right. to see everyone who's, who's saying this. And of course, after a point, you're so focused on that, you're not really focusing on how am I creating value? I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't get that feedback. When I do get people who come and say to me, I can't tell you how much that impacted me. And sometimes the, the information I give, I feel like it's just a point of interest because I'm not fully aware of all the, the extenuating circumstances going through. So when I get that little bit of feedback, it tells me there's some great value I created. Now, I would That's not right. have given that if I was so focused on, is this going to create value as opposed to just, I want to help people. And, you know, sometimes I'm going to get that feedback that it's beneficial, which means just keep doing it. That's right. And, and it's important for you to let that sun shine on your perspective. Right. So I always say, you know, don't don't forget your fan mail. And as one of my buddies, John Acaf, says, don't give your critics PhDs. So it's really important that when people come back to you after you've been generous and say you've made a difference and I really appreciate it, you keep that by the front door of your mind. And the reason that's important is because it keeps you moving forward. But but don't get addicted to it. It's not like likes for a selfie. OK, yeah. um, you, you have to understand that a small percentage will do that, but you do it only for the small percentage of wins. I mean, it's like dead poet society. Would you teach for your whole career to change a few boys' lives? Of course you would, but you still need to focus on that but not expect it. So let me give you a really important a really important assumption. I call it a big love assumption that will help you give um, successfully for a very long time. I want you to always assume that your beneficiary is paying it forward. That's what I want you to assume until it's proven otherwise, because you usually don't see that. And when you assume that someone you mentor, someone you network connect, someone that you show empathy to in a time of need, if you assume that you've made them a better person and you've created a feeling inside them that they need to do something and pay it forward, you release yourself from the shackles of reciprocity. I always think about the great philosopher Gide when he said, that which we cannot release possesses us. And I thought about, you know, what a profound impact Gide had on Dr. Stephen Covey Sr.'s theory of the abundance mentality that we've kind of grazed on here a little bit. But I think that that assumption will change your life in terms of your ability to give. Assume they are paying it forward and, and tell them pay it forward. I'm programmed, Tanvir. When somebody says, oh, Tim, I appreciate you introducing me to these two people. We're going to have a great business opportunity. What can I do for you? I typically say nothing. I enjoy this too much to make it my job. I say, listen, paying it forward makes the world go round. I want you to do a better job organizing your network. I want you to become even better at matching personalities and opportunities. I want you to commit yourself like I've done to introduce three people every week that should meet. And that, that's what I push. And then I assume that's what they do. And I let go. That's fantastic. And it reflects something you write about in your book about how the people who are the most successful and the most happiest, they got both, right. are what you call love cats. And right? the reason for that is because they recognize the significant benefits that come from biz love. That's right. Now, before we talk about how do we become love cats or perhaps even discover in how in some ways we already are, uh, what are those tangible benefits because we've been talking a lot about okay well these are the, the perceptual things but what are the tangible benefits that come from biz love that helps us to succeed yeah. and thrive 
So, so there, there's, there's a lot of them. We could do the whole conversation just on those because, you know, over the last decade traveling the world, I picked up more. But here you go. Here's the idea. In 1996, 1997, I discovered the meaning of business life when I ran into this idea. And it was a combo platter of works like Abraham Maslow or even the great Leo Biscalia. But really, it was the, time and place when I was working for Mark Cuban in Dallas, Texas at his startup, the famous startup broadcast.com that had the biggest opening day in IPO history. And when I went to work for Mark, his motto at broadcast.com, it was called AudioNet when I joined, was called Make Love, Not War. He basically said that what's going to separate us from every other business in our space is we're going to care about our customers more than they care about themselves. We're not going to fight with the customers. We may fight with ourselves to do the right thing for the customer, but when we go into the market, we're not going to make war. And he empowered us to tear up invoices for events we produced where the client wasn't happy, even if we ate tens of thousands of dollars of our precious startup capital. He empowered us to do that and relished in those moments when we showed accountability. He challenged us to read like he did because that dude was – I talked about this in Killer App. He was a voracious reader, man. When I met him in July of that year in 97, he'd probably plowed through 50 books that year on a variety of subjects. His curiosity was edge level, as I like to say in the world of training and development. He believed that the future was in books. People were too lazy to read books full form. Therefore, they could not effectively transfer knowledge to clients. And you have to understand, this in 1997 is a time where everything in the world's changing for all kinds of business people. So my particular industry that I focused on was retail. Can you imagine 1997? Here comes e-commerce. It's like 2017. Here comes artificial intelligence. So when I went to my retailers, I became their mentor. I read for their behalf. And let me tell you something. When this paradigm shift happened, 96, 97, my world changed because my career, say, for the first 15 years, up and down. Successful years, won some awards, changed some jobs. It was okay. Nothing that's going to be featured in the Wall Street Journal or on the cover of Fast Company. But once I started to practice this thing called biz love, that to every interaction I bring a gift. In every relationship I find ways to promote their success, the doors of life swung wide open for me. The first thing I developed um, was a much stronger client base, more ripe for referral. The second thing I developed was – um, pro- basically, I was a leader without a title in broadcast.com and then later at Yahoo after they purchased us. And what I mean by leader with title is that when you're generous and effective at growing other people, they follow you. And that changed my brand. And it also changed the arc of my career. I was promoted seven times in a very short period at Yahoo to become the chief solutions officer. Um, and by the way, the, the, the arc for me being an inside sales rep for Mark Cuban startup to CSO was less time than it would take to go to college. And it all came because people respond to those who care, who those who show that they care, and they show it in a way that delivers a high return on attention. So here's the benefits again. Stronger relationships, you build a brand as someone that should be introduced and should be met, and you build a stronghold out in the market of people that are not only loyal to you, they love you back. I don't mean they reciprocate. I mean they care about you, and it gives you rocket fuel. I used to always say that my cup of coffee, my rocket fuel, whatever the metaphor is, is to just recollect the last person that I helped. Because if you live your life, as we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, 
you will constantly be reminded of the significance you are bringing to the world every day. And as a leader or as a contributor or as in my case, a growing salesperson, that's the stuff that helps you get the last 10% of work done and exceed expectations and move up in any organization. Tim, there's something you said in there about the different benefits that really resonated because it reminded me of one of my favorite lines from your book. And it was the line you wrote where biz love gets you attention, others get only time. And I think that is so pertinent to today because, and it's such a profound idea when we think about how much faster things happen. I mean, we see how we barely have time to react to some new development in the news before we're now dealing with some new revelation. And it just seems we're becoming increasingly distracted and not fully present. And so it's really becoming a powerful distinction to ask ourselves, if we are truly garnering other people's attention, are we simply Mm -hmm. getting a moment of their time? Oh, you're going to love this wonky example I'll give you for that. Because attention is our very most scarce resource. But um, I don't even ever heard of Broadbent's theory. But Dr. Donald Broadbent, United Kingdom, developed an elegant theory, did a lot of experiments, a lot of other researchers have validated it over the years. And here's what he says. The human brain constantly adapts to reduce depression by limiting incoming attempts for our attention, right? So he believes that there's this filter. They call it Broadbent's filter because we always do that with academics. We name the invention or theory after the academic. But Broadbent's filter basically says the brain is developing a denser and denser and denser filter directly in relationship to influence attempts. And that today it is a miracle, a miracle, Tanvir, when anyone gets through and we hear them, we understand them, and we believe them, we act on them, and we remember them the next day. And and, and on the, the page, we'll talk about the page I'm setting up for your listeners later, I'll have a link to Broadband's filter and a graphic for you to see how dense this filter is, how many inputs a message has to go through, right? Because when he was studying this in England, I'm sure the average Londoner was being accosted for their attention probably a couple a dozen times a day. You know, the guy selling newspapers, the trolley car ringing the bell with ads. But Seth Godin said several years ago that the average consumer, this is before social media, they're being accosted for their attention over 500 times a day. Now, here's the punchline to the whole story. So when Broadbent's studying brain research behind this, he does discover that there is a, a, a velvet rope or Silicon Valley terms. There's a hack around the filter. It's called the amygdala. It's the emotional seat of the brain, which is 35 times more powerful than the logical part of the brain. And what Broadbent realized and what I evangelized is that the shortest distance between two people is an emotionally positive connection. So like if you think, and this is why leaders have to know this, if you think I really care about you, I'm going to get through to you and I'm going to move you to action. I'm going to help you align with our values and our perspective. That's why it's so critical for leaders to develop the ability to care and show it to other people, because that is the secret to influence in a world of no attention. It just reflects the fact that when you think about all those successful people that we admire, they didn't attain their successes and achievements because they were better at bartering than us. Rather, it was because they understood that when they actually got your attention, it had to be about creating some form of value add. And that value add is showing people that you have this outward focus on helping others. And with, like you said earlier on in our conversation, hopefully with the intention of also inspiring you to pay that forward. That's right. And 
you know, there's a really good nuts and bolts way to think about it. So let's say that you want to go out in the world and really help your best clients grapple with change. So let's say you're in a business um, where a lot of your clients are trying to figure out what comes next with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Maybe you've got some clients in the financial services industry dealing with robo-advisors, right? Maybe you've got some friends and clients in the staffing industry dealing with what they call bot recruiters, et cetera. So it's everywhere. It's highly disruptive. So what do you do? Well, um, I call it prescriptive reading. It's time for you to go to work and start read books. Like Big Bang Disruption by Larry Downs, for example. Great book to understand um, how technology will disrupt all business models eventually and how we emotionally can deal with that. And prescriptive reading is when you take on one of your clients' problems emotionally and you study it like they should be studying it intellectually. You buy these long, difficult books. You mark them up like a college student trying to get an A on a final. You... Really spend some time encoding that book mentally, understanding the big thought, the kernel ideas, the key stories that illustrate the framework, a couple of simple pieces of advice from the book. And then the next time you sit in front of the client, instead of showing them 50 PowerPoint slides and pitching them on something, give them a book with some notes and have a conversation about the future. And they will, they will really, really be impressed. And by the way, no matter what comes from it, You've just built a little bit of your resume out because I believe that this kind of reading habit will help you improve your resume every single year. Actually, you just now are touching on what you write as being the first step, right, for us to be becoming a a love cat, and that's knowledge. This is one of the things that really struck out with me because, like you, I'm an avid book reader. And Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a lot of us can all appreciate that. We need to keep learning considering how fast things are changing. But what I really resonate with is that the idea here is not simply to learn new ideas and information, which is a lot of times where the focus is, but that it's now also about actively sharing what we learn with those we meet who can benefit from those new insights we've attained. That's right. But why is that valuable for us to do to become love cats, Tim? Well, it's the foundation of trust. Like when you meet people, they, they they make a lot of decisions about you based on the intellectual added value you bring to every conversation. And when you devote yourself to aggregate knowledge in the spirit of sharing with others, you put yourself in a situation, and I said this in the book, to differentiate yourself, to separate yourself from the pack like a runner running away from his competition um, because it just doesn't happen much in the real world. But, I mean, the idea is you're aggregating knowledge with the express purpose of sharing, not just knowing. I mean, you know They can't take that away from you, but that's not the end game, and I think that's the difference. A lot of people read books, but they don't read business books with the intent on sharing. Oftentimes, they read them to solve simple problems or out of a professional sense of curiosity, which is fine. But if you do it with that kind of approach, you'll never take the notes and you'll never think about it in such a structured way as I do so as it's easy to share because – and we're kind of getting into this now – in Love is the Killer app, I reveal something called the Cliff and Tag system. And the Cliff and Tag system is a way to read books with the intention to share, right? So I, like I said in the book, the first two blank inside pages, if you're reading a hardcover, um, are the great points I don't want to forget. Page number, summarize the idea in a single line. That's a memory technique, by the way. The last two blank pages in the book, which is at the back of the book, are for projects or people I work with. So if I read something and I go, wow. So-and-so needs to know this. 
that chart is really going to blow their mind. I go back, I write a page 44 chart and then in brackets who I need to share that with. And that's a method I've developed since then. I've transitioned that to Kindle because my Kindle will let you now pull all of your highlights and notes. But the point here is, is that when you read with the intention to share, you read in a different way and it makes it easier for you to review, to recode and to effectively transfer knowledge. Because it's not just about talking to somebody. It's about successfully transferring an idea in such a way that makes them want to know more. Because we're never going to teach everybody something in a singular sit-down, but we can inspire them to take deep dives in areas that can change their life. But we can only do that as a teacher by knowing our curriculum's cold, and it comes from that intention and that process. You know, Tim, when I was reading this chapter knowledge and how you shared your strategy, like you just mentioned now, of how you process information, which you refer to as encoding, I couldn't help but think about my daughter, Malika, because unlike her sisters, my middle child is not a big fan of reading. And it used to be hard for her to get through these various books that were assigned for her reading. That is until she devised her own system for marking her book using different highlighters to color code different types of information so she could go back and find relevant passages. But then she'd take it one step further and devise questions for herself to ascertain her level comprehension. Mm -hmm. So that days or weeks later, if she looked at that question she'd know how well she processed the idea by how well she was able to answer her own questions. And as I told her, the fact that she's writing it down, she's not just reading it and highlighting, but she's writing it down, it causes her brain to use another portion of her brain where she's shifting from just processing information to now translating it in physical form. So you're using a different part of your brain to process that information. And so now it's easier for you to do recall as well as process mm-hmm. it because now you're using two different parts of your brain for processing that specific piece of information. That's great. But it also made me think it's an important point to bring up because I know not everybody is an avid book reader and there's probably people out there going like, oh, you know, I don't really like reading books. But as you point out, this is the first critical step to becoming a love cat, to becoming those people who succeed and thrive in today's faster paced business environment because we have some insights that we can share with others that they're going to go back and remember these conversations and go, wow, I really learned something from them. And we right. get that attention. We're not just getting their time. We're getting that attention. And, and that's a great point. And, and I think that the idea here is that books are long form. Books require a real commitment to a topic on your part. Um, books differentiate you from people that just read blogs or even worse, social media. Um, and I believe reading books are, are the kind of commitment that help you increase your kinds of commitment throughout the rest of your life. And to those that say, well, I just don't have the time to read books, I would repeat to you the same thing that Cuban used to repeat to us. He always quoted his favorite coach, basketball coach Bobby Knight, Indiana University, where Cuban and Wagner came from. Knight would always say, everybody wants to be a winner, but only a few people are willing to do the hard preparation work to win. So that's my answer. You can find the time if you care enough about it because there's a lot of places you can rob time. Um, one of them is to kick half the things off your calendar off your calendar because they have no purpose. <laughs> okay, so Tim, so now I'd like to move on to the next step, right? And actually, we should preface this by saying that we, you actually emphasize in your book that you do have to do this in this order for it to really right. reap uh, the benefit. And this next step right. is network. And so obviously, we all understand the importance of networking. But how should we be using our network to bring more biz love to the way we lead and do business, Tim? Your network is your greatest net worth. 
I mean, if you think about it, there is no asset you possess more important than that network of relationships because they have the ability to do anything collectively. So, so the concept here is that you share knowledge to establish trust. You share your network to generate insane value in the lives of other people by connecting them with other people they should meet. And this idea of sharing your network intelligently starts with building your network intelligently. People need to be more serious about how much time they take to put the stuff in their context database. You know, I use Outlook, for example, really simple. I import a lot of the key LinkedIn contacts, so they're there. I got one place. I keep all my stuff. I've learned to categorize it in a way I can get my hands on it. It's with me at all times on my smartphone. If you organize your network, just like reading a book strategically, you can give it away systematically, okay? So the idea here is that you want to make the leap from being a networker to being a super connector. Because a networker thinks, I'm going to go to this event, I'm going to meet some people, and they're going to help me make it to the next level of whatever project I'm working on. Now, you may decide in an act of reciprocity or bartering to dangle one of your contacts like a carrot in front of the other person. It's a trick you see all the time. But fundamentally, the kinds of questions you ask them are all screening questions, really, to figure out what they do and how they can help you, right? So I believe that you need to approach networking as an act of love an act of generosity, what you're really trying to do is connect two or more people that should meet and get out of the way. And there's a lot in doing that effectively. It's not easy. And the first step is to change your conversations. Yeah, sure, you might ask a stranger, what do you do? But that's a screening question. You need to ask a question that reveals an opportunity to help. I love to ask this question. What are you working on right now that you're excited about? What's your wow project? And when the other person starts to tell me about it, I never bring it back to me. My favorite command is out of a new book called Ask More. Uh, It's called Tell Me More. So when a person tells me more, they move past the headline, they move past the dream, they start to talk about the reality, and then they start to reveal to you obstacles. And in that part of the conversation, networking or connecting opportunities present themselves. And then it's really a matter of you executing it effectively. That's the way I approach putting people together that should meet. That's the way I think about networking. I absolutely love this point. I mean, this one was another one of those insights that really caught my attention because I already follow your point about sharing our network with others in the sense of, you know, when people in my network ask if there's anyone I know who could help them with something, I'm more than happy to reach out and make those introductions. But I love this idea you present in this chapter that the goal we should be thinking to ourselves when we're interacting with these new people is who within our existing network would enjoy meeting this new person that we're thinking Mm -hmm. of the new bridges that we can help others build even though those new bridges won't be of any use to us directly and i just think that's a phenomenal approach to networking where even now i mean i've gone just a few weeks ago to a business cocktail party and there's still those transactional nature to some of the interactions where people are too busy, as you said, sizing up how I can help them instead of having this outward focus on relationship building and taking it one step further to saying not just a building relationship between you and me, but who can I introduce you to? Because they would say, wow, this is the kind of person I've been looking for. And so helping my network meet someone new and in the process have this new person now being introduced and merged into my existing network. Yeah, because 
when when you when you do something like that for someone and you don't expect anything, uh, trust me, um, you're top of mind to them later to make the same connection because. The norm of we talked about reciprocity. I don't expect it, but the reality is the norm of reciprocity is very deep set. You know, a lot of people that join your network because you brought them in to help them may just very well be someone that you need at the most important times of your life. I can't tell you how much manna falls out of heaven for me on things like speaking engagements or whatever from somebody that I did a networking thing with years ago and I've never ever said anything to them about it you know as a matter of fact I've always tried to practice humility if they come back and say oh yeah it's changed everything I'm like mm. networking introduction doesn't change everything you have to change everything you have to execute on it you still have to build things you got to survive adversity so you know I always think about this story I, I talk about on the circuit it's not in the book it would be if I updated it, but I'll share a quick headline with you because there's a takeaway here. Elmer Letterman, Letterman with one T, is thought of as one of the greatest networkers in the history of life insurance. And he started his little firm in the 30s in Manhattan uh, during the Great Depression. What a tough time, you can imagine, <laughs> to sell life insurance. Um, but he had this thing he started to do a few years in, and it's called the Letterman Lunch. And here's what he would do. During the week, he would prospect to find three people that should meet. So like he tried to find a chef, maybe that's got an idea for a new restaurant, found a good place to have it. He found uh, an investor that likes putting money into restaurants, still making investments during this period of time in the right idea. And then finally, he'd invite a construction person um, who's famous for finishing on time on budget and, and really understands you know, how to build an effective kitchen. And that's like how Letterman thought strategically about a lunch. So they'd get together on Friday, and he'd get everybody glued to the chef's opportunity. He would pay the bill at 1245. He would leave. He would never bring brochures or business cards. And, and the chef – could launch the restaurant a year later. There could be a line around the block. Letterman wouldn't accept a free meal. He wouldn't expect to be a VIP front of the line. And when he'd see the chef at the front door, he would ask him, how'd you do it? Because he realized that what he did for that person was the first of a thousand steps of the entrepreneur's journey. Anyway, the punchline is he does this. 50 weeks out of the year for 10 years becomes a decamillionaire in the 1940s. His firm still exists to this day. And, you know, that's an example of how goodwill is the original viral marketing, right? So he went out, just do the math, right? He helped three people, put them together, expected nothing in return, showed incredible humility. He did it 50 times a year in the same market. He compounded it over a 10-year period. He created his own stronghold of referrals and goodwill. And that's exactly you know, how you effectively do that. And by the way, this story comes from a great book by Ivan Meisner um, called The Masters of Networking. You know, Tim, this story actually brings up another point in the same chapter that really resonated with me, and it got me thinking about how I connect people within my network, and that's your point of fusing the connection. That's right. As you point out, most of us, myself included, because I have done this, and I think I did it just like a few weeks ago before I read your book, simply make the introductions. You know, someone will say, hey, do you know anybody? We'll make those introductions, and then we'll just leave these two people from our network to figure out what value they can gain from this new connection. But as you write, what we need to do and what your story just demonstrates is we, have, we need to make sure we leverage our own brand to ensure that the person mm -hmm. in our network can appreciate why we're sending this person in their direction, that we show that we're as committed to making this work, even though the benefit is for them and not us, as you pointed out with the story of Mr. Letterman. Yeah, so I've gotten very technical about that. You know, over the course of the last few years, I've gotten extremely technical about how I approach this whole discussion. So, so here's the way I think about that. Um, when you introduce two people, let's say you have to do it over email, because this is where the, we're the worst. 
you do not want to just throw something over the wall like, Tim, meet Tanvir. You guys need to know each other because we're not going to act on it. We're busy. Our inbox is full. Okay. So here's how I want you to think about it the next time you do this. In every introduction, there's a benefactor and a beneficiary. Okay. The benefactor is the person that can help the person you met, the beneficiary. All right. So when I write an email, um, I write that email and I consider it my sales job to get the two of them to talk. So I'll first say to benefactor, hi, I'd like you to meet beneficiary. And then I have their LinkedIn profile linked to their name. And I say, comma, um, who is doing X and in search of Y. And then I might make a little statement about why I think this is a credible person, why I think this person is a good match, et cetera, why I want to see this person succeed. And then I say to the beneficiary, now meet benefactor, linking his name or her name back to their LinkedIn profile, comma, who, as I mentioned in our conversation, does or has this resource. And he or she is a very good person to work with. They're very, you know, et cetera. So, so basically it's links, it's credibility. And so the secret to all this is that before I send that email, I'm going to text or call the benefactor and say, listen, I'm about to send you an email to introduce you to somebody. And I, I don't do this much because I don't pepper people, all the same people. I, I rotate it, right? So I say, I'm about to send you an email. And I'm very serious about introducing you to this person because I think it's a really good introduction. So just do me a favor and reply. And, uh, you know, you can come, you can come kick me in the knee later if it's a waste of time because I really think a lot about matching personalities too. And then I send the email. And then if I don't see the beneficiary react with like, when can we get on the phone tomorrow? I'm going to call that beneficiary the next day and say, hey, knucklehead. You gotta respond to this introduction yesterday. I don't do this with him or her very often. So I've learned it's the call, the email, the call. That will dramatically increase the fuse rate of the people that you introduce because it's not just about the act, it's about the outcome. Nice. Yes. See right there, that's the critical thing. Again, it's about what is the intention, right? Where are mm -hmm. we focused really on the action? Which again, the action's on us, right? Right. It's really about, okay, I'm the one to put you two together. Whereas the outcome, as you point out in your story about the restaurant, the chef, yeah, I might have put you all together in the same room, but that was just the first step, as you said, of a thousand mm -hmm. others. And when you have a thousand steps, one step, it's not really as big. And those 999 other steps had everything to do with everyone around that table and not me. And so I love mm -hmm. that idea that it's really about the outcome and not the action. That's phenomenal. But you know what? It also ties into the last stages process, which you aptly call disappearing, where we need to make sure people understand that our commitment to making this connection work is not because we stand to gain something from it, but because we want both of them to succeed thanks to this new mm -hmm. relationship. And you've got, to, you've got to know how to do this, and you've got to conquer, it gets back to ego economics, because now, unlike what Letterman was doing this, there's Facebook, and there's LinkedIn, and there are these people you introduced, and they're having to shake hands, and they're cutting the red tape, and they're standing on the New York Stock Exchange, and you think to yourself, well, you just want to write in comments. Well, you're welcome, right? right. It's a tendency. It's a tendency. Yeah, I love to look at those things and think if they only knew. But then again, I'm, I'm humble. I don't really consider myself a big player in that. So it's really hard, but the better you can disappear and not remind people you made the connection, but be ready to accept their gratitude if they bring it to you. Um, I think that's also the secret uh, to not having anxiety in that relationship, right? Because biz love is 
never having to say you owe me. You know, I wrote that in the book. I mean it. And I will never call a favor in and I will never remind someone of what they did. Because think about how bad that makes you feel. That's like inviting someone over to your house for a dinner and you and your family spend all day preparing the house and preparing the dinner. And when your guests arrive, they bitch about the traffic. How do you feel about your guests? So we have to think that you know, our intention, our behavior after the give is very important um, to how the other person feels and how strong the relationship is going to be over the long haul. Because no one's going to like you better because you reminded them that you helped them. No, not at all. Not at all. And also, you know, you're taking away ownership from their accomplishment. Yes, you helped play a part and it's up to them to decide who they're going to thank when they go up on stage. And I think that's why I love that statement. I think it bears repeating that it's not about the action, it's really about focusing on the outcome because then the sense of ownership really goes to the two people who are the three people mm -hmm. or how many of putting them together and knowing that and doing that, you're helping to create value that goes on and hopefully will will pay it forward over time. And, you know, I think this is a great segue to the last step to becoming a love cat that you write about in your book, and that is compassion. And I'm really excited about this one as I've written about this on my leadership blog and the idea figures prominently in my first leadership book. So in the context of winning and influencing business and of bringing biz love to the way we work, why is this important, Tim? Why is this the last critical step to our becoming love cats? Well, it's the pinnacle of the relationship. That's where you put the human inside the relationship. I mean, a, a bot can share knowledge. A website can share network, but only a human can share compassion. And it's that it's that desire that other people do not suffer. It is that hope that other people find happiness that separates us from those thinking machines, you know. So so compassion is something you'll develop for a person, hopefully very quickly. You'll cross that chasm and you'll really care about them. You'll really think strategically about how to reduce the suffering in their business life. You'll think strategically about how to amplify the success in their business life. And to me, that's what it means to bring compassion to work. Well, what does that look like? Well, first of all, it's about being encouraging. It's about being empathetic. I think that empathy is a leadership superpower. Your ability to treat other people's feelings as facts, your willingness to do the hard work to see things from their point of view, it's one of the most compassionate things we do. I looked at some research in psychology that said that the greatest emotional benefit two humans can give each other is validation, and that's what empathy is all about. Um, and the last thing I'd say is that you know compassion is also about you know bringing a little warmth to the business world. I mean. You know, it's not always HR friendly, but yeah, I, I, I shake hands, I hug, I let people know how much I care about them. I laugh with them, I cry with them, I talk about personal stuff with them. If they're going through something with their family, I say stay home and deal with your family. That's what compassion's about, right? So there's a lot of ways we can practice it, but just remember that when we come into the world, our greatest need is compassion, besides, of course, Maslowian, you know, food and safety, et cetera. But compassion is something that we grew. Our arms are outreach. We want that from people. When we go to work, we still want it. It's just that a lot of leaders, again, worry that being compassionate can get them taken advantage of or worse, being thought of as weak. And to that I say, and I'm going to repeat myself from something earlier, but this is the point here. Be compassionate like a grandparent's compassionate with you, okay, because they're going to hold you accountable. Ain't nobody disrespect granddad because he cares, okay? 
but you're going to do it like a family person, not like a mere friend you spend some time with somewhere like in college or on a football team because that person doesn't hold you accountable. That's the person who looks the other way when they should be challenging you. That's the person that maybe breaks the rules so that you can get ahead. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that tough kind of love that comes with a, a set of accountability. I want you to learn. I want you to grow. I want you to take advantage. I want you to learn from your mistakes. These are all given with compassion so long as you're intention is that as a leader, you're using what I call design, well, not what I call, but what I now talk about, design thinking, to systematically think about things from the other person's life experience and to design out all the suffering and to design in all the personal growth. You know, Tim, while I was reading this chapter, there was a line that Maya Angelou wrote that kept coming to my mind, and that was that line she wrote about how people might forget what you said or did but they won't forget how you made them feel. And this reflects something you talk about in the very beginning of your book where you discuss the different stages that the world economy has been going through from starting off where the focus on the product and then we're now at the tail end of it being all about the service that we create and now it's going more and more to the experience. And this is where we can see the role compassion is going to play because it's really now more about What's the experience? How did we leave people in that interaction? How did we make them feel? To really drive home a final point here for the leaders, uh, kind of a takeaway, is put compassion to work immediately and think about employee experience design like you think about customer experience design. Because when you think about customer experience design, you put the customer at the center of the conversation. You segment their experience with you along all those little transaction touch points. You go find all the pain points and get rid of them, right? And you try to find or stage a couple of signature moments that make you memorable. And that's customer experience design in a nutshell. Well, guess what? Great leaders today who want to create a great place to work that attract the best talent and retain them, they apply that same thinking towards the employee. They segment the entire employee experience along all those little transactional touch points. And they find the pain points and get rid of them. And they find those signature moments they can stage and install them. Leaders who act with compassion will do great at this because compassion is at the heart of customer experience design. Your point here actually reminds me of another quote I really liked in your book. And you wrote, compassion creates commitment. That's a pretty powerful statement. Could you elaborate, Tim, on how our being more compassionate and how we lead creates more commitment? Well, to to quote the phrase from the book, uh, the difference between ham and eggs is (laughs) chicken is involved and the pig is fully committed. (laughs) Listen, when you show human compassion to that other person and you're with them in the most trying times and you're that person who hugs them and says, I'm here for you. When you show empathy to that person and he comes to you and shares a vulnerable feeling and you're the only one in their whole world that says, I can only imagine how you feel. I am sorry you feel that way. You are putting yourself in a position that in the future, you're going to do this again and again and again. It's really hard for you to be compassionate one day and not the other. It just doesn't work that way because once you get involved at that level with the person, you're going to be their mentor. You're going to be their matchmaker, and you're never going to betray a person that you love. And so I think that's that's how the whole thing gets set in motion when you start to develop those compassionate relationships, because I think it cements your commitment to other people to help them, not just now, but in the future, and also creates an extreme level of conscience on your part about doing right by them and finding a way through personal innovation as a leader 
to meet the needs of the organization without sacrificing the condition of one of its people. And I think that's hard. That's your greatest challenge. It's almost like Napoleon Bonaparte when he said, translated, the leader's role is to define reality and then give hope. There's another idea that kept coming to my mind while reading this chapter, and it's a word in the Zulu language, sawubona, which means I see you. And I think this is exactly what compassion in terms of Bislov does. It allows us to see the other person for who they are, and not just in the context for how we view them in terms of, okay, what are we going to get from them? What do we need from them? And so forth. But in terms of who they are, so we can share knowledge and people in our network who can be of genuine help yeah. and value them and to truly be compassionate, to understand where they're at, what's impacting them, what's affecting them, and putting it all together so that they can be successful. We can know that we help to make a difference. That's right. Exactly. Seeing them as a human being, not a direct report. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Tim, I want to thank you for sharing your insights from your book. As you can see, I really got a lot out of it, not only because it made me realize the next steps I should be taking, but it was also affirming in how it allowed me to see that what I'm already doing is making a difference, not just in terms of myself and my work, but in terms of those people around me who I do feel driven to help succeed, to learn how to become better leaders and live the life they were meant to live. So thank you so much for this, Tim. I, I really enjoyed your book and our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it myself. And I mentioned earlier, uh, we, we built a very special page for the listeners. It's timsanders.com front slash LBC, front slash LBC, like Leadership Biz Cafe. And we'll have an excerpt there from Love is the Killer app, the clipping tag system. I think I mentioned that before and then ways um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or in other cool places. That is very cool, Tim. Thank you so much for doing that for our listeners. And it's a perfect example of the very first step of being a love cat in using our knowledge and sharing with others and paying that forward. So again, Tim, I got to thank you again for taking time to speak with us and to share your ideas on how we can all bring more biz love to the way we lead and run our organizations. I really enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. I enjoyed our time as well. I've been talking with Tim Sanders about his New York Times bestselling book, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. To learn more about Tim's work, visit the webpage for this episode at tavernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as the topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at tamvinasir.com. And if you found my show on Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio, I'd appreciate it if you could take a moment and please rate my show. Until next time, this is Tamvinasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening.